Well, good evening. It is good to see you all again. It is, I mentioned this last week, but uh, the darkness that comes in early. I was reading some Facebook memes this week, and some of them said, I love the time change. It allows me to see the sunsets over my lunch break. Uh, that, that's exactly how it feels, isn't it? Uh, to drive in, it's dark outside by the time we get here, and uh, we, I know that feeling, and especially, as I mentioned before, having been to Ecuador uh, just uh, over a week ago, where it's sunny a lot of the time. You wake up uh, pretty early in the morning, the sun's shining, you go to bed late, the sun is just starting to set, and so you get this balance of like, ah, oh, this is what it's like to live on the equator. Uh, the same amount of sunlight, no matter when, uh, no matter what time of the season, it's here, and I, I was appreciative of that. But uh, nonetheless, that's not where we're at. So uh, we get to enjoy the, by the way, if you didn't see the sun set on your way to church, it was gorgeous this evening, and just a reminder of the hand of God at work uh, there. So take your Bibles, if you will. We're going to start in First Thessalonians uh, tonight. Uh, that is not where we will remain. We will be moving again. As I mentioned last week, we'll be running through the texts of Scripture, highlighting these functions of the church, and that is our uh, title, The Function of the Church, Part 2. We dealt with the first few of them last week. Now we're going to add to these functions of the church. What is it that the church is supposed to be doing? And if we understand what we're supposed to be doing, then that helps us understand what we're not supposed to be doing, and it helps us to know what we should refine our energy and our effort towards as a body of Christ. This week, as I prepared specifically for the morning message, uh, there's some trepidation dealing with the topic that I dealt with this morning as you move through the text in 1 Thessalonians. And as I'm reading the headlines and those things that are popping off that I'm going to use for illustrations it struck me that now the church is no longer seen as kind of a, a side. Those who are over here, we're not going to talk about them. We're not going to mention them in popular society, but they're there. To now being the named enemy of those who hold to deviant practices and immorality. I knew that was true, but to actually have it called out, mainstream media in the way that it was this week, was something that was a little bit of a, an eye-opener. Of course, we know that it's always been there, but now instead of just calling out the politics, they're calling out the people. Who are you? Who are those who are standing firm for conservative biblical truth? And it reminded me of the songs that we just sang, the need to stand in the gospel. One message that is the church's message. And so that is where we focus in our attention. We're going to have a number of these tonight. We're going to have to move somewhat rapidly. I'm trying to condense probably three sermons into two. And so we had the first one already last week, and we're going to finish out more topics to discuss tonight, more functions of the church to discuss tonight, but we're not going to go as deep into them. We needed some depth in some of the first ones that we studied last week. And so that'll help us as we build in to the truth that we study tonight and the function of the church part two. As we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time 
in his word. Father, we are grateful that you have established your church. She is yours. She is for your purpose. She is the bride of Christ. Lord, as we understand the church then, we want to be those who understand faithfully and diligently what we are to be about. It's easy to be sidetracked by what even other Christians say that the church should be doing. It's easy for us to get caught up in the sway and the pull of those things, but I pray that we would not be as those who are driven from one trend or happening to another, but that we would be those who stand firm, recognizing how we are to reach out to our community, certainly, but that we would stand firm on the truth of your word and the functions of the church. We praise you that there is great clarity in the function of the church, and there is great freedom then to live out those functions as long as they are completed. So teach us how to do that. Guide us by your Spirit and help us, aid us where we do not know what to do or how to do it, that we would depend completely upon your wisdom and your will as we study this morning. So Lord, give me the words to speak tonight as we run through these next several functions of the church, that we'd be found faithful and diligent and being convicted where we need to be convicted, that we'd be challenged where we need to be challenged, and where we would stand firm on those areas where we are doing well. And we give you the glory and the honor for it this evening. We ask your blessing upon our time in your word, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This evening we begin with our first of a number, and that is one of the primary functions of the church is prayer. What a great privilege it is for you each week to receive the prayer list and throughout the week to receive the prayer emails that come out and say, these are the needs that we've had throughout the day. Be in prayer for these things. But we also recognize that there's more to it. And as a church, notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, you've probably... Uh, in your earlier years, if you've known Christ for a long period of time, you've probably memorized this one because it was a quick one to memorize and to quote somebody if they said, anybody have a verse that they've memorized? Uh, you always hear the one, Jesus wept. I memorized that verse a long, long time ago. I remember when I was in youth group and one of the youth pastors asked the question, he says, I- I've got candy here for anybody who can quote verse of scripture, does anybody know a verse? And of course, every hand goes up, Jesus wept. He goes, where's it found? Every hand goes down. <laughs> Let us not be that way. But this is one of those short verses that is like that. First Thessalonians five seventeen. the scripture is short here and it is helpful. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. If you can say that, you've memorized a verse if you didn't know it before tonight. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. There's not a lot of flowering, fill-in language here. Paul has instead provided us the example of what that looks like. We've had the privilege over the last several weeks together as we studied 1 Thessalonians to see how much time Paul spent in prayer for the Thessalonian believers. So when he comes to the end of the book and he says pray without ceasing, he's not being flippant. He's not just adding extra space to fill in the lines before he says farewell. Paul is saying, keep this perspective. Pray without ceasing. Prayer can be hard work. We get into a rhythm and a routine, and we begin to only pray in that rhythm and routine. Perhaps you pray before meals. 
Perhaps you pray after meals. You pray with your devotions. You pray when you wake up. You pray when you go to sleep. And maybe that becomes all that there is to prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's easier, so prayer is hard work, it's easier to pray when we have a problem that needs to be addressed. So we appreciate maybe the prayer sheet coming out because we say, ah, here's, here's needs that we want to pray for and that is appropriate. But if that is the only time that we pray, we kind of have a rather, if you don't mind me saying frankly, a weak prayer life. We have a weak prayer life if your only prayers are those in times of trouble. It is difficult to pray for the Lord's will on behalf of God's people, but it is necessary to pray for the Lord's will on God's people and for the will of God in our life, especially when things are going well. But that is when we must pray every bit as much as when things are not going well. Let us be those who pray without ceasing. Look at the prayer, actually, the way we're taught to pray. Turn back to the Gospels. We're turning back to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6. This is the Lord teaching the disciples to pray. Very familiar. You've probably memorized this passage as well, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9 and reading through verse 13. I want you to listen, because we know it, but listen well to the character and the quality of what we ought to be praying. Jesus says this, he says, pray then like this in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And continue on, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So up to verse 13, we have a very clear outline. Some say this is what we're supposed to be praying, and I would say this is our outline. This is what prompts us in prayer. This is kind of our prayer guide. It starts us to help to understand what we ought to be praying, where our focus ought to be. And it is necessary, and it requires self-discipline to pray. But we should be doing this, not only as individuals, independence on God, but as a church, independence upon God. To pray without ceasing means we are to pray that we will pray when people are around, and that we will pray when no one is around. We will pray in the fellowship of the body of believers, and we'll pray outside, where the fellowship is dispersed. It may be easier for us to have a group to pray with us, to encourage us, and sometimes we may find that is difficult. Nonetheless, this is necessary for us to be in prayer. It is necessary for us to have the self-discipline to foster this kind of prayer life, and each one of us must, is called, to obey the command of praying without ceasing. Write down, we don't have time tonight to look into it, but write down Luke 11, 5 through 8. And the context of that is the Lord is sharing an illustration of a, a host who goes to the neighbor's door to beat on the neighbor's door for bread for the family that he is hosting, the one who has come to visit. 
Let me ask you the question. You may find it easy to beat down the neighbor's door for your own provision, but what about for the provision of those who have just come to visit? That's what prayer is. We are those who are praying on behalf of others. We're praying on behalf of our family. We're praying on behalf of our fellowship. We should be those who are effective in going before the Lord and beating on the door. And we should be disciplined to do that. But we also need to understand, as we turn now to James, we understand the effect of prayer. And this is where it impacts the fellowship probably more than other places. We understand the concept. We're not trying to convince, and I'm not trying to work through the passage and say, you need to develop a prayer life. We need to do this or this or this. I'm just saying this is what we do as a fellowship. This is what is essential in the function of the church. We should be those who pray without ceasing. Now James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And there's some context here, but I'm going to begin in verse 16. And I want you to listen carefully to James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then the illustration of Elijah who prayed that it would rain fervently. Prayer is personal, but prayer is also corporate. We recognize the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. One of the great benefits of praying for one another in the body of Christ is, and I I just did this a few moments ago, is to remind each other the effectiveness of prayers. You may be praying for a health need, or you may be praying for a financial need, or you may be praying for a relational need, or you may be praying for your own spiritual well-being and growth, following the things of the Lord, understanding the will of God. You may be praying for another to do that in an accountability relationship, or whatever you are bringing before the Lord, whatever type of prayer, whether it's intercessory prayer, whether it's a petition on behalf of somebody, or it's a, a cry out to the Lord, whatever type of prayer it is, those prayers are effective. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit aids in our prayers when we do not know what to ask. So what a wonderful truth as a body of believers that we have this access to the creator of the universe who spoke all of creation into existence by simple word. We have access and the promise that prayers are effective. So how do we do this as a fellowship? Well, one, encouraging one another as individuals. Two, this was the set design when we sat down and worked out small groups as a church ministry. Small groups, because as we see culturally happening and around our world, we see prayer meetings reduce smaller and smaller and smaller. We have prayer meetings here as a fellowship, and there's times where you can do that with one another. There's the ladies' Bible studies and those kinds of things. But we also have the specific and the set-aside time during small groups for praying for one another. Imagine sitting around a group of 15 people encouraging, strengthening one another, confessing your sins to one another in obedience to what we see in James, rather than a room full of people where you're separated way back there and you're way up here and you're way over there. Small groups provides that intimacy that allows prayer to be effective in confessing your sins to one another. 
recognizing that the Spirit is the one who makes those prayers effective. And so we praise the Lord for the opportunity to do this, but it is not a program. Let us not leave it as a program. We must be engaging in prayer. When someone is struggling and you see them on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, and they said, I am dealing with this issue, stop right there, pray for them right there. Let us be the church that prays for one another. We don't have to have a program. We don't have to have a service. We don't have to have small groups to pray. Those are just aids to help us do that. Let us be those who are disciplined, self-disciplined to be in prayer for one another. This is one of the primary functions of the church is to pray for one another. And what a privilege it is. Let's go on because the next one is discipleship. This is commanded by the Lord. <clears throat> and we're going to turn over to the pastoral epistles, turn over to Second Timothy as we begin to set the stage for this. This is commanded along with the Lord all the way back to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where we are commanded to go therefore and make disciples, that is evangelism, and to train them to observe all that Christ has taught. So that is discipleship. Discipleship is critical in the life of the church. And I would suggest that we are seriously lacking discipleship from one generation to the next. But it is also my personal opinion that we overcomplicate this command. We try to say, well, that, that's reserved for the professionals. Let us leave it with the professionals. And we overcomplicate it, perhaps subconsciously, actually to avoid obedience. And we try to apply some self-prescribed salve to our own conscience that's telling us we should disciple. Discipleship is not as hard as we make it. Discipleship is one-on-one, life-on-life, showing another believer how to walk the Christian life to become more like Christ. That's it. How do you do that? Well, how many of us go to breakfast or have breakfast or drink coffee or drink hot tea or in some other way gather socially with somebody else? We all do in some capacity. Be intentional. I'm actually writing a section right now in a book for the IFCA that we're developing into a manual on pastoral leadership and what is it that a pastor is to do. And my chapter is on discipleship. I'm going to be writing this chapter right now. It's actually due in a little while, but I extended my, my timeline when I was asked. I'm like, I've got to extend this out, all the stuff I'm doing this fall. Got to extend this out. And one of the reasons I wanted to extend it out is one of the greatest disciplers I know lives in North Carolina. This is a man who knows every barista in every coffee house within a 30 mile radius of his house by name. Why? Because he'll meet individual young men in every single one of those coffee houses every single week to the tune of 20 to 30 young men at any given time, where he will meet with them every week. And what does he talk about? How their life is fitting in with the pages of Scripture. What they're struggling, the disciplee comes in, they say, these are the issues that I'm facing, and he begins to help them think biblically through it. There's no book, there's no manual, There's simply the time spent in the Word of God and prayer together. That is discipleship. And there are hundreds, hundreds of missionaries around the world who have been discipled by this man. 
And there are thousands of husbands and pastors who have been discipled by this man who still live in this country. This is discipleship. It's not some weighty task. It's not some deep, we've got to do all these certain hoops and we've got to jump through them all. And we've got... It is life on life, living the Christian walk together. The more spiritually mature, discipling the less spiritually mature. And being discipled themselves by more spiritually mature. It is not optional. Every believer is to be engaged in discipleship, but it is not difficult. It is not difficult. Perhaps one of the reasons that we struggle is that in order to be disciplers, we have to be discipled ourselves by someone or by a process of sanctification, of growth. And so it exposes. If you've ever sat down with somebody in a discipleship relationship, and they begin asking you questions, you realize that a lot of those questions you've asked before. And if you don't have answers for those, it makes you seem vulnerable and weak, at least in your fleshly mind. I've sat down with individual young men, and at one time when I was in my previous ministry, I had two young men who were going through ordination at the same time. And ordination is a grueling process where we would sit down at Panera Bread and we would sit there for two hours every week working through the theology and they were sharpening each other and sharpening me as I was sharpening them and helping disciple them for the point of ordination. And it was a precious time, but it was a grueling time because there's nothing like looking at two disciples who are preparing for ordination and they're asking me a theological question I don't have an answer for. Like, wait, wait, wait. I'm supposed to ask you questions you don't have answers for. That's, it exposes. But we recognize what Paul says to Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And you are evidence of this. You are the fruit of this being done. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It is critical that when you, when you do the work of evangelism, that you don't just stop at evangelism, that you press on towards discipleship. And those that you disciple, especially you who are leaders in this fellowship, you have opportunity to disciple tremendously. But narrow that focus in on those who will be able to train others as well. Train the trainer. Train the teacher who will teach another generation. And praise God, you are all evidence that somebody did that. Because here we are 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words to Timothy, and somebody shared the gospel with you. And somebody showed you how to live the Christian walk. Maybe not thoroughly. Maybe you wish that there was more to it. Certainly we do. But somebody began to show you the course of Christianity. Maybe it was a parent who trained you, and you should train others. Timothy is a prime example of the discipler discipling others, and the disciplee then discipling others. 
So Paul instructs Timothy to press forward to teach another generation who will teach another generation. You who are older in the fellowship, one of the greatest joys in the Christian journey and the fellowship of the body of Christ is to disciple the next generation in Christ. Your grandkids, praise the Lord for them, and if they know Christ as Savior, you're discipling in them, you should be pouring into them. Praise God for that. Don't neglect that in any way. But also look around and see others who need discipled within the fellowship who are younger. Maybe it's a young parent who has a child that uh, is just growing into the diaper, just growing out of the diaper stage, and they've got questions about how do I help my child now at this point. Or maybe it's the teenager who's coming into that period where they're making decisions, life decisions, important big life decisions, disciple into them as well. The purpose is that you're training the next generation for the next generation for the next generation until the Lord would return. Let it be that that we drive as a church. And we have an importance. We don't have time to dig into it totally, but turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I just want you, I'm just having you turn here because I just want you to write this chapter down, 1 Corinthians 4, and I'm going to just briefly speak about the chapter itself, but I want us to notice, while this isn't the distinct purpose of the chapter to be a template for your discipleship, it's all here in 1 Corinthians 4. What does discipleship look like? Well, it's here. Notice verse 12, uh, back up to verse 11, says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst and we were poorly dressed and buffeted by homelessness and we labored, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, what do we do when we face hardships? Isn't that a question that we all have? What, what do I do when I face persecutions when the rest of the world st- suddenly fingers me as the enemy? What am I supposed to do? Do I wallow in despair? Do I shut down? What am I supposed to do? Paul says what I'm supposed to do. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. He goes, skip down to verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, I'm doing this. I'm providing you this example so you know how to walk when I'm not here. Isn't that what a parent does to a child? To my children, I want my children to be far more successful adults than I am. That's my goal in training my children. And specifically, my goal is I want them to advance further in godliness than I ever could have dreamed for myself. I want that for my children. That means I better be active in discipleship for my kids and for the fellowship of the body of Christ. Discipleship must be done with an attitude of love. One author, and that's what we were just seeing here, as Paul calls them, the beloved children. One author writes, you, do, you need to be able to say, I'll give you my life, and I'll give you my time. I'll pray for you, and I'll give you my insight. If you do not care about a person, and you're not willing to make sacrifices for him or her, you're fooling yourself if you think you can disciple them. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? It takes true, genuine love. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't disciple as effectively as we should. It takes sacrifice 
and life on life. Discipleship needs to be corrective of erring immaturity, and it needs to impart divine truth. So it's going to love with hard, a hard edge sometimes, as we saw here. Paul says again, verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. You could almost get the sense of the Corinthians wilting as he's writing, saying, I'm not writing these to make you ashamed. I'm writing this to admonish you as my beloved children. I'm telling you this out of love. That is discipleship going to tell you the truth when the truth hurts. It's going to give life on life. It's going to pour in to one another. Discipleship, listen carefully, this is the last statement on discipleship. Discipleship is more than just hanging out with another person with the same interests. Well, we both like the lions. That's not discipleship. That's fellowship, but not discipleship. Those interests can and should be used to carry discipleship along, but discipleship has to go to a deeper level. It has to be lovingly, carefully guiding another to walk like Christ walked. But it's not complicated. It just requires your sacrifice and your diligence and a healthy dose of humility to be able to disciple a next generation. Let's move on. Shepherding. This is a primary purpose of the church, a primary function, I should say, of the church, is shepherding leaders uh, in order to be found faithful as a church fellowship and fulfilling this function. The church must have leaders who tend the flock. One day I will bring out, and I'm, I'm still crafting, I've got two shepherd's instruments or tools that I'm crafting, I'm making. One is the rod and the other is the staff. Well, Scripture tells us that the rod and staff of our Lord is comforting, but actually when we think of it, it's only comforting after it has been a discipline to us. It's important that we understand that the rod and the staff are used for very important and sometimes painful work. The staff of a shepherd is with the hook, and it is used to pull a sheep back from where they're going or to pull them out of trouble. It is used to separate sheep off and and sort sheep from one pen to the next. And so the staff is gentle and guiding as it goes. The rod is used for punishment. The rod is an instrument that is used as defense, It is usually a staff we recognize, we see the staff all the time, but a rod is usually short, about the size of a walking cane, and it's got a great big bulb on the one end, and usually down to a pointed end, and the point that sticks into the ground is it's used along for helping aid in the shepherd's walk, but it is also used in the sense of protecting the flock from big enemies and little, and disciplining the flock when they've gotten out of line. So, a shepherd, if a wolf were to attack or a lion were to attack the sheep and was at some distance, wouldn't get near to the shepherd, the shepherd would take the rod and he would hurl it at the predator that was attacking the sheep and it was used to some great effect and would often be possible to kill the attacker to the sheep with the rod. But then it would also be used... As the sheep were coming in to the sheepfold, it would be used to lift up the wool of the sheep and to see the tiny little predators that were hidden underneath the wool, little parasites that had gotten in 
down dug into the skin of the sheep, and it was used to make sure that the sheep had become free of parasites. But it was also used to thump the rebellious sheep. And so all of these tools are used, and we see that a leader is one who will tend the flock. A shepherd is to model, uh, rather shepherding is to be modeled by the pastor and the elders. But it is also the work that takes place in the daily lives of the believers. It is that which is corrective. It is that which is pointing to the chief shepherd. And so all of the tools are available. And we turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, as we see the instruction here. This is also a very important text, 1 Peter is, on the work of shepherding. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 4, give us our marching orders in shepherding. And really, we could start back in verse 1, but I'm going to start here in verse 2. We are to be, verse 2 says this, 2 through 4, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is discipleship, by the way. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so Paul, or rather Peter, is given this specific instruction to the shepherds who are of the church that has been dispersed. He says, tend the flock, look to the chief shepherd, serve God willingly, serve the flock willingly. The chief, or the, rather the under-shepherds serve the chief shepherds and they lead others not to themselves but to the chief shepherd. If you don't see Christ, if you see the shepherd and you're following just the under-shepherd, you are not following the right individual. There is a tremendous number of ministries that are in our world today where the pastor is seen as the one who built the church. That is wrong. We don't look to the pastor. We look past him. We look past him to the chief shepherd. We want the chief shepherd to be the one that we are uh, becoming like, not the under-shepherd. We want to be like the one who saved us. And so this is hard work. This is diligent work, and we should have elders and pastors who are faithful in this work of shepherding, which involves teaching, it involves mending, it involves tending, it involves care, it involves time spent at your lowest and time spent at your highest. It involves helping you come along and sometimes calling out sin, checking out parasites, excuse me, and avoiding those types of large predators. It's a tireless work, but it is a work that the church has as one of its primary functions. But it is not just for the elders and the pastors to be doing this. Fellow believers who minister to one another are also called to tend or to shepherd each other. So lest you say, well, the shepherding isn't very good in one place, Let us recognize that we are each called to doing the work of shepherding each other. Turn over to 1 John for just a moment, just a couple books further along. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 17, where the scripture there says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
It is our responsibility to mend, disciple, equip, and train each other, especially when we have the availability and opportunity to do so. Everyone must be involved in the process of tending to one another. Say, well, that's, that's the pastor's and the elder's job. We have elder care groups, and you say, well, let's just wait until the elder checks in on them. No, if you know of a great need, go meet the need. I've often told somebody who comes to me and says, well, pastor, so-and-so, they've got, a, they've got a, an enormous need. They need someone to come visit them or take them to the doctors or take them to this place or that place or to watch their kids or figure out the need. And I'll often look at them. Sometimes it's not, but often I'll look at them and say, do you have the capacity to meet that need? Because that's what John is instructing. We are to be those who when we see the need, we don't pass it off to somebody else. We do the work of shepherding one another. Sheep caring for sheep. That is the function of the church. That's why the church isn't dependent on one single person, except for Christ alone. So let us be those who meet each other's needs. If you love people, you will recognize their hurts, and you will seek to meet their needs. It is possible that we leave the work of tending to the quote-unquote professionals and neglect to do it ourselves when we're fully equipped to do it. We're fully equipped to do it. Sometimes people's expectations, and we need to understand this, sometimes people's expectations are too high. They expect too much. They demand too much of other people. But many times people's needs are not met because the church does not make themselves available when the need arises. I was speaking with somebody this past week about uh, meals. They had gone through a, a significant portion of difficulty in their life, and the church had arranged meals for them. And they said, you would not believe how much of a blessing it was just to have people from the church come over and bring us a meal. Maybe they don't even stay very long. They just let us know their love for us. That's work I can't do. But that's work that the sheep can do that the sheep can do for the sheep. What a great joy of seeing each other shepherding each other as part of the flock. It's important that we see ourselves as sheep and shepherds caring for one another. We're caring for each other all the time. There are those who are quiet about their needs. We know that, and uh, sometimes that is even my own needs. That's as... The shepherd, I don't make known my needs often. But some of those who are quiet about their needs, they don't get the care that they need. Still, there are others who frequently fall into sin and trouble, and they have shepherds hovering around them all the time because of their great needs, and it's aware. And so the staff and the elders are hovering around those few trying to move them towards godliness and so our time is distracted and, and is limited in the ability to shepherd others in the flock. That's where the sheep shepherd the sheep. It's where the flock shepherds the flock. Let us be those, because this is the primary function of the church, let us be those who practice shepherding and being shepherded.
Let's move on. We need to continue to move. We have training. Now we're moving to Ephesians. And remember, as we go through these, uh, this is just a, a, a quick list, a checklist. We're not trying to be exhaustive. In fact, that should be evident. We could spend weeks on prayer, and some days we will sp- someday we will spend weeks on the issue of prayer, and we will spend weeks on the issue of discipleship and some of these other things, as the Lord wills. But these are just quick checklists. As we understand ecclesia, we understand what the church is about, these are things that must receive priority because these are significant functions of the church. And so the next one is training. We must be those who are diligent in training each other for the work of ministry. And it starts again with the structure that Christ has given to the church. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and notice the giftedness. I'm going here because this is a short list of gifts, but there's greater lists of gifts, and each one of us has a spiritual gift that I believe is uniquely and distinctly yours that the Spirit of God has given you to use in the body of Christ, not for your good, rather not for your glory, not for your personal use, but for the use in others, that you would use it and others would benefit And if you're using a spiritual gift for your own privacy, that's not a spiritual gift, or you're misusing it. Spiritual gifts are for the equipping of the church. Notice what is said here in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry in building up the body of Christ. Every single gift that is given in the body of Christ. If you know Christ as Savior, you are given a gift of the Spirit of God, and it is unique and distinct to you. It is unique and distinct to be used in the body of Christ in which you are participating in, and for the universal church, the church that is this body and all believers since the time of the ascension of Christ to the present age, and perhaps beyond. Aren't we thankful that we are participants of the giftedness of the apostles, even though we no longer have apostles. If we were not participants in the giftedness of them, you would not have the New Testament. So we praise the Lord that each generation of the church is built upon the gifts of those before, but it's also important for us to understand that the church is not an organization that you just replace the CEO, the CFO, the COO, and whoever else is below. It's not an organization, it's an organism. And it's an organism that is being used, and you are uniquely fit into that position. When you refuse to use your giftedness for the sake of the church and the equipping of the saints, you are harming the entirety of the church because you have withheld the giftedness that is to be used in that specific slot for the training and the equipping and the building up of the body of Christ. You each play a role, and each role is just as important as any other role. It may not be up front. It may be behind the scenes. It may not be a prevalent behind the scenes, but nonetheless, it is equally as important for the equipping of ministry for the work that the church is called to do. The church is gifted to prepare people for not general ministry, but specific ministries, specific tasks for the edifying the body of Christ. It's to encourage one another. 
By the way, this is why we made some of the changes that we did to adult Bible fellowships. It's still in process. We're still developing and molding and shaping those things that are the adult Bible fellowships. But the intention, the intentionality rather behind it is to equip and train and present to you the opportunity to grow in ministry, the body of Christ. And so we see that. It's only one of many times for training to take place, but we see that we're refining and equipping, molding for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Because don't we live in a turbulent age? When we look at the world around us, we live in an age that is rapidly changing in its attitude toward the church. The church has to be ready. I've got a friend who, not giving you any names because of sensitivities, but a friend who's recently traveled back to China as they were church planters trying to plant a church through business as missions model in China. And they've been out of the country since the beginning of COVID. And going back in, he sees the changes that were made in those number of years and the hostility that has increased toward the church. We live in days that are very different than even just a few years ago, even in places that were already opposed to the church. It's very much more hostile. So we need to be those who are equipped for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ. And we also recognize that part of this, as we move into Ephesians chapter 5, notice the way that this works out, a very familiar passage to us as well. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and, or rather 22 and following. The scripture says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And we can read all the way through chapter 6, verse 2. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read those. For the sake of time, we're familiar with this text, but it's important to understand that the church structure is designed after God's design for the family. So God has designed the family and the church to function in a similar way. And so that means if we're equipping people for ministry, we're also equipping people for family. We're teaching people how to be better parents. We're teaching people how to be better husband and wife relationship and servant relationships, how to be a better employee. So we're training people not just for ministry, but for life in the body of Christ. The church is to train God's people in God's designs. That's what we are supposed to be doing. That's a main function of the church. When we recognize that when controlled by the Spirit of God and submissive to one another, we began to understand the design of God for the family and for the church. The families of the church should uphold one another, pray for each other, and care for one another. So that happens on a day-to-day basis. You may not be the one who's standing behind the pulpit. You're not. I am. Uh, So I have a task. I have a responsibility. But so do you. What do you do with that child that's just a little bit more irritating behind you than you would like them to be? By the way, before you answer that, I love having children in the service. I cherish the sounds of a little one. Do you know why? 
because there's new life there. Us older folks that sit there and we're quiet and we listen well, uh, there's some training yet to go, but it's the new little one that can't sit still, that's coloring on one of the uh, children's bulletins that Sarah Berkey makes every week. I love that. I love that. How do we view those children who rattle that paper a little bit too much? Do you, do you give that... Uh, I'm Dutch, so I can say this. I remember when I would sit in church and I'd make all kinds of noise and my grandma or my grandfather would look at me in only the way a Dutch person could look at them. It's unique. I don't know what it is. I never saw... I, I grew up in an area where there was no other Dutch people than my grandparents. And so anybody else who would scowl at me didn't bother me. But when my Dutch grandparents would look at me, it went to my soul. There was a look. Let me tell you what. Do we give that scowl to that child? Do you give a disapproving look? Or do you come along and say to the parents, you're doing a great job. Keep going, train them in the Lord, and share how to do that. Not giving them advice as much as just giving them guidance. We must move on. Next, giving. We have a great need to give, and we praise the Lord for the evidence of this in our fellowship. This is nothing new to us. We understand it. We see the Lord's blessing tremendously but it is one of the primary functions of the church that we are those who give of our time, talents, and treasures. It's not just resources. It's sacrificial time. It's sacrificial resources, yes. And it's our sacrifice of our talents. In other words, our giftedness. All of this fits together. Turn over briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8. couple things we need to understand about this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15, the scripture says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Uh, this, this is the uh, encouragement, this is the end of Paul's encouragement to give with generosity uh, to the needs of the churches of Macedonia, or the, rather to join in with the churches of the of Macedonia that they'd given towards the needs in the church in Jerusalem. And he's saying, give in this way. Uh, he says, all, all through this text, he's saying, I don't want to be a burden to you, and I don't want it to be burdensome when I arrive, but you need to give faithfully and abundantly. And, he, and then he uses this passage that's a quoting of other portions of Scripture. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, it's not about the amount it's not about the amount that you give, it's in the attitude in which you give. You say, well, I had a lot, and then I didn't have any, you know, I reaped all kinds of great harvest, and then I had nothing left to give. And the one who had little harvest gives some, and they have no lack of the ability to give. It's an interesting concept. It's the same thing we see in the widow's mite as well, and the illustration that Jesus uses. She gives two small little coins when 
the rich love to hear the money rattling around into the bottom of the box and say, oh, look how much I've given. And she gives so very little, and yet the Lord says that she gave far more than they gave. It's the same principle. Paul is continuing to promote that principle and to teach that principle. And he gives even further detail because he gives us the attitude in which we should give as well. Having established that in chapter 8, now he moves into chapter 9, and he says this in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And the next verse, each one must give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The church cannot tell you how much you should give. That is a conversation you have with the Lord, but you must give. The command is to give. And you will, if you understand, and if you don't know the story of Letourneau, the one who founded Letourneau University, go look it up. This was a construction man who had a construction company and determined that he was going to give away as much as he possibly could, and he could not outgive God. He would, I'm not recommending that as a course. I'm just saying read the illustration. Read what went on as he was found by the leading of the Lord to give so sacrificially that he was giving 90% of his income away and could not outgive God. And Laterno University is its result. Let us be cheerful, sacrificial givers. There's a lot we could say here. But we want to ask the question, because we have to move on, we want to ask the question, how well do you manage God's possessions? Because they're not yours. You're simply a steward. They're God's. How do you handle God's possessions? Giving is a function of the church. Churches should not amass a fortune Churches should not be buying airplanes for their pastors or expensive shoes or skinny jeans, for sure. But we are to be good stewards of the money that God has entrusted to us. And we are to use it for the training, teaching, equipping, building up of the body of Christ. Whether that is in the money that comes in or whether that is in the talents that is in the fellowship, in the giftedness that is in the fellowship, or other resources. We must be those who are found faithful. Finally, the last one we're going to look at. I said we're going to squeeze two sermon, or three sermons into two. This is our last point. The church must be intentional about fellowship. The church must be intentional about fellowship. It is a main function of the church. From Acts chapter 2, Verses 42 and following, the church has needed fellowship. Fellowship involves being together. And as we read what happened in that early church, now we must be careful because the early church had all things in common. They'd given all of their possessions away and had used it all in common. They were not one time told to do that. Not one time were they told to do that. That we see in the pages of Scripture. Maybe the Lord led them to do so, so he could use them as an object lesson in Second Corinthians. But by the time Paul comes around 
in 2 Corinthians, he's asking the Corinthian church to join the Macedonian church to give faithfully to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Well, the church in Jerusalem already had the financial support that they needed for so long, but they had given it all away and had all things in common. And so is there maturity in that? I would say no, there probably isn't the maturity in that. And so there was a need for a collection to be given to the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's times for that, we understand, but it would certainly appear that we don't want to copy everything that the early church did as they were growing to maturity. That's my point. But as we look at the fellowship, we recognize what they were doing when they fellowshiped together. This wasn't just a casual, hey, why don't you come over for the ending of the game? This was an important time where they loved on each other. They prayed for each other. They uh, broke bread together. Fellowship involved being together and more. Let us be found faithful in doing more. And again, this is a function of small groups. It allows us to be in a small group setting where we are able to do this more faithfully with one another. But we also must have a common life together. We're going to turn one more place, turn over to Ephesians, actually two more places, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following, where the scripture says this, beginning in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being fitted or being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Each believer, this goes with what we studied a few moments ago, each believer has a part in the household of God. This is why cliquish groups in the church are such a problem. There ought not to be cliquish groups in the church. Groups that only assemble around their similarities and their likes and dislikes. Each believer has a role and a function within the whole family of God. We benefit from those who use their giftedness in fellowship with us. It's a cherished time. For those who are in my small group, it's a cherished time for me to sit around and listen to their prayer requests, to pray for them, to encourage them, to fellowship together in just those few moments where we have just together an unplanned conversation. To, in our small group, we have opportunity for uh, bringing everybody in and just enjoying a Thanksgiving uh, spread and enjoying that time. And those are precious times because we're intentional about praying for one another and we're intentional about loving one another. We're intentional about using our gifts for one another. May that be what we do in the whole of the body of Christ. One last passage, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10, this is the key text to fellowship. Galatians 6.10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We ought to go out of our way to do good to those who are in the fellowship, the body of Christ. It's been the testimony of many Christian businessmen that those in the church, businessmen and women, that those in the church are sometimes the hardest people to work for. I've heard it from a number of Christian businessmen and women. Because it's pretty easy for the one paying for services to say, well, I'm a Christian and we go to the same church. 
you should give me a discount. Uh, That's not obedience to Galatians 6. What is obedience to Galatians 6 is that you'd pay more for the work. Or you'd give them cookies or something the whole time that they're there. There ought to be a greater love demonstrated from us than what we anticipate receiving back from them. It's pretty easy to ascribe the benefits of fellowship to ourselves, but it is commanded that we serve in the fellowship. Let us be those who serve in the fellowship. We must be looking for those in need and do good to them. We must not be, especially within the body of Christ, we must not be selfish and expect that they should give good to us when we've acted in a disassociated or dispassionate way towards them in the fellowship of the body of Christ. These are, as we have studied here tonight, along with what we studied last week, these are the functions, the muscles of the church. This is what the ministry looks like. Each one of these components that we studied both last week and this week are necessary for the church to be considered healthy. Because when you have a muscle that is rebelling in some way, it is maybe it's because of diabetes or something and the muscle's just not doing what it's supposed to do, that is not health. That is a weakness. And it's pretty easy for the church to have weaknesses in certain one of these functions. Let us be diligent to recognize that there's a lot of good things the church can do, but there's not a lot of great things that the church can do. It's a great thing for the church to be obedient to the functions that Scripture has laid out for us. Let us be found faithful in those things. Of course, it's not exhaustive. There's other things that we could add to this list, certainly, but these are the big 10 functions over the last two weeks that we've studied. There's a lot of good things we could be doing in the midst of this, but let us be diligent in making sure that these great things are what are being done in our own hearts and lives, in the body of Christ. Don't don't start go picking holes and saying, well, we're not doing this, we're not doing this, we're not doing this. Start here first. Start here and begin to ask the Lord where your giftedness needs to be fit into the functionality and the muscles of the church to do what the church is required to do. Let me close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word has given us the prescription of what the church ought to look like. We have many church manuals that are written out there that tell us all that we should do in the body of Christ, and some of those are wide and varied. Lord, I pray that we'd be found diligent and faithful in sticking to your word, diligent and faithful in being students of your word, and then being willing to be those that actually accomplish what we study. Lord, we praise you that your spirit aids in our prayers to make them effective when we do not know what to ask. And there are many times when we're praying for one another that that is the prayer that we utter. Lord, at the same time, we may not understand how to use our giftedness in the body of Christ or to disciple another believer or to reach out in evangelism to the lost or to conduct faithful missions work or to center a specific situation in the Word of God, but all of these are the functions of the church. So I pray that you would allow us to be those who seek out relationships that are edifying, strengthening, and building up, that we would be found faithful and obedient to you. Lord, it was already prayed this 
a few moments ago at the start of this service, but I pray it again. We praise you for our veterans, for those who have served diligently and faithfully, those that are in our families, those that are in our church family, the sacrifice of time that was made, the the stresses of being separated from family into war zones and difficult situations. We pray that we would be a shining light and testimony of strength and renewal for those that have served our country, that they would see Christ in us. And those that do not know you as Savior would come to know you as Savior. And those that do know you as Savior would understand from us an expression of deep, sincere appreciation and love. Lord, we have our freedom to meet in this building because you have granted it to us. But it has come in this country on the shoulders of those who have sacrificed all. And so we thank you and praise you for the freedoms that we do enjoy, even as we see our age and our land turning from you. We recognize still the tremendous freedom that we have to gather here tonight. And we do not take it lightly. And we exalt you and thank you for those who have sacrificed. Lord, as we depart from here, I pray that your name would be glorified as we put in these ten functions of the church, that we'd be found faithful in doing them as we gather in together, And as we disperse throughout the week, that your name would be glorified in it. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things and our time spent tonight and last week studying these functions of the church, that you alone would be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.